You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 7.3, What Happened? And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and really enjoying researching the -the behind-the-scenes history of Formula 91, because every single newly realized detail makes me go, oh, yeah, okay, That, that explains it. And I'm Nina, new to F91 and regretting what might have been. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 619 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters. Star Platinum, Seth M, Cameron G, Holkiboshi, Chi, Sean B, and Philip W. You keep us Genki. In other news, there are less than 10 days left in our annual pin promotion. These pins are a patron exclusive. We don't sell them anywhere, and we do not re-release them. Plus, patrons get other perks, like early access to new episodes, cool Gundam merch, access to a patron-only Discord that we spend a fair amount of time in. (laughs) Too much, probably. And bonus content, like our Witching Hour series about the current Witch from Mercury anime. If you enjoy MSB and want one of this year's beautiful enamel pins, Pledge at least $5 a month by Sunday, November 20th, 11.59pm, New York time. For pictures of the pins, full details of all of our different patron tiers, and to sign up, visit GundamPodcast.com Patreon. Don't forget that our annual contest is also still ongoing. If you have not yet submitted your pitch for a self-contained one-episode-long Gundam story, you have until the end of the day on Sunday, November 20th to do so. We've gotten a few questions about the spoiler policy for the contest, so I want to clarify that you should write your story as though you are doing so in 1988, right after Shara's counterattack came out. Your story doesn't need to be set in UC0080, but you should imagine that it is being made instead of War in the Pocket. That means it can't incorporate any characters, mobile suits, or events first introduced into the franchise after 1988. So, hypothetically, Teenaged Haman Karn's first day at Axis High School would be valid, but Haman Karn teams up with Anna Velgato and the Musha Gundam to steal the remains of the Kempfer would be rejected. Though that would be a pretty good show. <laughs> you can find more info about the contest, including pictures of the prize bin and a copy of the full rules, in a post over at gundampodcast.com Patreon. We are eagerly awaiting your entry. This week, we continue to circle ever closer to actually talking about the movie Gundam Formula 91, with a deep dive into the -the behind-the-scenes story of the film's production, followed by a brief discussion of the four trailers that were released prior to the movie's debut. You can find these trailers in various places, but we're watching the set that was included as a special feature on the Blu-ray version published by Right Stuff in 2017. 
Now, for the following production history section, we are going to assume that you have seen the movie. I'm going to be discussing some of its events, including some from the very end, so if you haven't seen it and you want to avoid any spoilers, then now is the time to pause the podcast and go watch F91. Okay, everyone finished? That's perfect, because... When the credits for Gundam F91 roll over the closing song, Eternal Wind, Hohoemi wa Hikaru Kaze no Naka by Moriguchi Hiroko, many first-time viewers say something like, wow, what happened? And it can be kind of hard to know whether they mean what actually happened in the story just now, or what happened during production of this movie to make it like that. For all its merits, and I want to assure you that I personally like this movie a lot, F91 is a bit of a mess. Compare it to Char's Counterattack, released just three years prior, and it becomes pretty clear that, yeah, something must have happened. CCA has its fair share of problems, of course, but ultimately it's a compelling piece of cinema, greater than the sum of its parts. Next to it, F91 feels more like a collection of wasted chances. On paper, it ought to have been a masterpiece. They had ambitious plans, and a team that mixed proven veterans with future stars, led by some of the biggest names in the business, enthusiastically backed by their sponsors and supported by a massive promotional effort. So something must have happened. Rumors about the nature of that something have swirled in English-speaking Gundam fan communities ever since the movie came out. Mostly, they revolve around the theory that Formula 91 was not supposed to be a movie. In the most compelling version of the story that I've heard, Formula 91 was planned and written to be a TV series, but after the planning was finished and animation had begun, the sponsors abruptly pulled their support. Sunrise didn't want to throw away all the work they'd already done, but they couldn't finance a whole TV series on their own, so they decided to recycle whatever was already finished, stitching it together to form a Frankenstein's monster kind of movie, composed of scattered scenes from what would have been a whole 52 TV episodes, all of it held together by the barest minimum of connective tissue. But that story is mostly false. With precious little reliable information available in English for most of the past three decades, it's easy to understand how people latched onto the idea. It does seem to explain what happened. It's pretty close to what really did happen to the 1985 Mecha OVA Megazone 2-3 Part 1, and it is based around a kernel of truth. Thankfully, in the last couple of years, folks in the larger Gundam fandom like Xeonix Ganlations and Mark Simmons have been working hard to resolve the mystery and dispel those rumors. The narrative I'm about to recount comes mostly from their efforts, as well as those of folks like Tim Eldred, Tayuta, Aidango, Koda, and many others who have translated interviews that helped to fill in additional details and color around the edges of this story. Now then. Following the release of Char's Counterattack in 1988, the Gundam franchise entered what I think we should call an experimental phase. Char's Counterattack had been advertised as the last Gundam, the end, a kind of exclamation point for the original Gundam storyline. In one trailer for the film, the narrator intones, Char's Earth Destruction Plan is a plot to destroy mankind. 
Fate guides both men, and their fight will bring the Gundam legend to a close. In another one, the narrator says, Now the time has come for the final fiery showdown. Filled with the ultimate maximum excitement, the drama is approaching a monumental end. You will see the shocking climax of the Gundam legend. Despite this, I doubt that many people seriously believed this would be the end of Gundam as a franchise. That would be like letting the goose that lays the golden eggs retire. Throughout the 80s, Sunrise and other studios had pumped out a series of Gundam imitators, but more than anything, those other projects simply proved how much value lay in the Gundam name itself. The franchise was going to have a future, but the shape of that future had yet to be defined. This was the period when sourcebooks, spin-off comics, novels, radio dramas, and the like really started proliferating. There were original Gundam creator Tomino Yoshiyuki's novels, Senko no Hasue, known to us as Hathaway's Flash and published in three volumes from February 89 to March 1990, and the serialized novel Gaia Gear, which ran monthly in New Type magazine from 1987 until 1991. There were relatively well-remembered spin-off projects like the manga Under the Gundam, Double Fake, or the parody Ji no Kage Shinobu about ninja who pilot mobile suits. The mobile suits were also ninja. And there were a host of now mostly forgotten ones like Top Gundam, which was a collection of short stories, or Space Battleship Harem Nocturne, a one-shot comedy manga about a captain who doesn't wear trousers. On the merchandising side, Bandai's hobby division had tried selling Gundam kits that weren't tied to a currently running anime, with mobile suit variations, MSX, Gundam Sentinel, and most recently, the first run of SD Gundam kits. But they understood that toys don't sell themselves. Gunpla sales always dipped in the gaps between anime releases, and with the possible exception of SD Gundam, none of those other spin-offs were pushing enough units to make up the difference. As for SD Gundam, even though the toys were already selling well before Sunrise started making anime about them, the actual peak for SD sales coincided with the release of all those animated shorts in 89, 90, and 91. Sales then dropped off pretty dramatically when the drip feed of SD shorts ended. Meanwhile, Sunrise was trying to figure out a new direction for Gundam anime. It's safe to say that they saw themselves as the natural leaders of the Gundam project, but with fan attention focused on stuff like SD Gundam, which was really a Kodansha project through its Comic Bonbon magazine, and Gundam Sentinel, which was the result of a partnership between Bandai and Model Graphics magazine, Sunrise must have been feeling the pressure to do something big, to recapture the Gundam initiative. They wanted something new and exciting, but above all, it had to be something accessible. They had been making Gundam for Gundam fans for the better part of 10 years, and the franchise needed new blood if it was going to survive. In early notes written around March 1989, Tomino was clear-eyed about this problem. He was convinced that the next Gundam project would fail if audiences saw it as merely the next in a series of past works. Going further, he wrote that later installments in the Gundam canon like Zeta or Double Zeta had failed to surpass the original because creators who obsess over past works are tempted to play it safe, taking shelter in the shadows of old triumphs instead of creating something that is suitable for the moment. Then, as though he were laying out one of the fundamental laws of fiction, he added that this is because 
continuing a work through a series of sequels results in the atrophy of the work itself. Naturally, this created a set of paradoxical incentives. The new work had to be recognizably Gundam. It had to satisfy existing fans, casual and hardcore alike. It had to sell merchandise. It had to perpetuate a vast commercial and artistic ecosystem. But it also needed to be totally fresh and new, disconnected from all the Gundam that had preceded it, and accessible to a whole new generation of fans. It needed to be something that would connect with the youth of the 1990s in the same way that first Gundam had burrowed into the minds of the children of the 80s. They needed to make the lightning strike a second time, to step twice into the same river. It was time to go home again to a place they had never been. There was a feeling within the team that the only way to do this, to refresh the franchise, was to reunite the people who had created it in the first place. Besides original director Tomino Yoshiyuki and producer Yamaura Eiji, the team soon secured the participation of original mecha designer Okawara Kunio and original character designer Yasuhiko Yoshikazu. Part of the difficulty they had been having was that first Gundam had charted a course, and everyone working on Gundam after that had been doing their best to keep following that original course. There were rules and expectations. The Universal Century looked and felt a certain way. Newly designed Gundams could only deviate so much from the original, and only in certain ways. There could be variations, but radical reinvention was not going to fly. On Zeta, Double Zeta, and Char's Counterattack, new ideas had been rejected because they didn't look enough like what people expected a Gundam to look like. Tomino, Yasuhiko, and Okawara had made the rules. So perhaps they were the only ones who could break them. The production staffer, Inoue Koichi, whose behind-the-scenes accounts are among the best sources for F-91's creation, addressed this problem. If we were going to change it, he said of the design for the movie's titular Gundam mobile suit, it could only be now, with the original staff reassembled. Okawara's participation comes as no surprise. He had remained a Sunrise mainstay throughout the 80s, turning in work for Zeta Gundam, along with shows like Metal Armor Dragonar, Armor Hunter Mellowlink, and Mashin Hiro Wataru. But getting Yasuhiko on board again took some doing. You know that movie trope where a character has to do just one last job before retirement? Maybe someone from their past shows up at the door with an offer they simply can't refuse, even though they have every reason to think it's going to be a disaster? That is exactly what happened here. Yasuhiko talks in glowing terms about his work on First Gundam and his relationships with the rest of the staff, especially the chief director. They were so in sync, he says, that they knew each other's thoughts without needing to speak. It was a partnership, and the lines that delineated each person's role on the project were fuzzy. Yasuhiko was the character designer, but he was also the animation director, a title that he himself had suggested. At the time, the standard industry title for this sort of position was Sakuga Kantoku, which you could translate as animation director, but in context it's more like drawings supervisor. Yasuhiko felt the role was too limited. He characterized it as merely fixing the drawings, and that's not what he wanted to do. He had had a broader role on Space Battleship Yamato, and so he insisted that if he was going to work on Gundam, he needed to have input into the story, and he wanted a title that matched this enlarged authority. Hence, he would be the animation director, literally, 
Animation Director. In this role, he worked closely with the chief director and the writers, at least up until his illness took him off the project. And that was just how it was on First Gundam. Every new detail that emerges about the production process makes it sound more and more collaborative. Now, there is a mythic version of the story, which casts Tomino himself as a kind of godlike creator, with the Gundam narrative, the characters, really the whole of the universal century just springing fully formed from his mind. Depending on who you're talking to, this creation myth might emphasize the contributions of Okawara or Yasuhiko. More rarely, you might get someone acknowledging the particular star animator or the writers or the composers, but usually they all fade into the background compared to the Kantoku, the chief director. Though not remotely true, this is a seductive and enduring myth. It's basically what you get if you read the recently translated manga Hagiography, The Men Who Created Gundam. And I'm sure it occasionally bamboozled us back when we first started making this podcast. But no one likes to admit to the mistakes of their youth. In reality, First Gundam was a tug-of-war between all the key creators. Okawara designed the mobile suits, but Yasuhiko changed some proportions and Tomino sketched out many of the machines in the later part of the show. Tomino hated Shar's mask, but Yasuhiko insisted on it, and the director was forced to adapt the story to account for it. He has said that Shar's iconic backstory and his relationship with Sela were both developed in response to the mask, not the other way around. Tomino always gets credit for the story because he outlined the whole thing, except that there's a swath of episodes, almost a third of the series, that he didn't outline. He turned them over to his team of writers and said, do your thing, figure it out. And they did. Some of the most memorable episodes and the most iconic characters are from that section. Consider Iselina Eschenbach. The animators hated her design, and Tomino thought her whole storyline was unbearably cliché. But it was written, and she was designed, and they just had to do the best they could with what they had in front of them. But by the end of the show, the myth of Gundam was already starting to form. And when the show went from flop to phenomenon, it was Tomino standing there in the spotlight. Tomino writing the tie-in novels. Tomino giving a speech before a rapturous crowd at the anime New Century Declaration. Tomino, who became the father of Gundam, synonymous with the franchise. And his name has been slapped onto the credits of every book, manga, show, movie, video game, audio drama, and theme park ride ever since. I don't know if Yasuhiko felt jealous about all of that. He was an acclaimed creator in his own right, and there was little danger that his contributions would ever be overlooked. But maybe there was a problem developing for him that was larger than just one man getting all the credit for one show. Tomino was helping to set a precedent for a new way of thinking about anime production, which focused on the singular role of the chief director, the kantoku, as the principal creative force behind a project. Tomino is actually said to be the first anime director to take that kantoku title for himself, and of all of his many legacies, that might actually be the most pervasive and lasting one. After all, that's basically how we talk about anime now. Sakuga enthusiasts do heroic work celebrating and analyzing the contributions of specific animators, anime music fans can talk about bands or composers, but the bulk of casual, critical, and scholarly discussion focuses on the big name at the top of the credits page. We can talk casually about Miyazaki films, and names like Takahata, Shinkai, Oshii, Hosoda, and Yuasa will be familiar to many of you, 
But how many of us can name the character designer for 2017 magical realist masterpiece The Night is Short, Walk On Girl? It was Nakamura Yusuke, but I had to look that up. Again, I don't know if Yasuhiko envied the rising prestige of the Kantoku, but I do know that it was in the mid-80s when he started to take on that chief director role himself. And I'll return to that in a moment, because Yasuhiko's experiences as Kantoku would have a major impact on how he felt about F91. But not, I think, as much as his experience working on Zeta Gundam. Yasuhiko had been pretty happy with how the story of First Gundam developed, but things started going off the rails a bit after he got sick. He was never thrilled with the new type concept. It was fine in First Gundam because it formed the end point of the story. It was a clever way to raise the stakes for a dramatic conclusion. He might not have liked where it was going, but hey, it was the end of the story. It wasn't really going anywhere. Predictably then, Zeta Gundam became a problem. New types were the whole foundation of the new show. They ran through it like veins of silver. Yasuhiko's role was also more circumscribed. He was supposed to design the characters, but that was it. He would not return as animation director or drawing supervisor. He had no authority to influence the direction of the story. And it also seems clear that the relationship, both personal and professional, between Tomino and Yasuhiko had already started fraying before the two men collaborated on Zeta. According to mecha designer Izubuchi Yutaka, the breach in the friendship between the two goes back to 1983 and the premiere of the Yasuhiko-directed movie Crusher Joe. According to him, Yasuhiko decided to blow off the premiere, an event attended by sponsor reps and other important industry figures, in order to attend a meeting for a different project that was in the pipeline. Tomino, a stickler for manners and recognizing what a disaster this could be for his friend and colleague, went to the premiere himself so that there would at least be some high-profile director there to shake all of those important hands, even if he had nothing to do with the movie. That night, Tomino confronted Yasuhiko, called him unprofessional. They started quarreling, things got heated. It's possible that the fight even turned physical, although Izabuchi doesn't say so explicitly. Tomino, though, would later tell people that he was afraid Yasuhiko was going to throw him through one of the windows. Yas had grown up on a farm in Hokkaido, and he was known for his strength. Tomino, even then, was slight and aerodynamic. The defenestration bit seems like maybe it could be an exaggeration or a joke, but if so, it was a joke that he would continue making for years to come. He was still talking about it during the production of F91. Now, neither of the men themselves have publicly confirmed the story, at least as far as I know, but it would fit the facts that we do have, and it certainly seems to match their temperaments. Either way, a few months later, they started collaborating on Zeta Gundam. But working together only deepened the chasm that had opened up between them. Yasuhiko was in charge of character designs, but he was unhappy with the new portrayals of his characters from First Gundam, and he felt like he didn't have a proper grasp on the new characters either. He wanted to meet with Tomino to talk things over, to get on the same page, to understand each other. But Tomino didn't want to meet with him. As far as the director was concerned, Yasuhiko could submit his character designs, and if Tomino wanted changes, he would request them in writing or through a production staffer. When Yasuhiko came into the studio unannounced to try to get some face time, the director dodged him, 
and his people told Yasuhiko not to come back without an invitation. Perhaps Tomino thought it was a waste of his precious time. If Yasuhiko was turning in satisfactory character designs, why bother with a meeting? Or perhaps there were too many windows in the studio, and Tomino didn't want to take the chance. Either way, it was a terrible working experience for Yasuhiko, and he resolved not to go through it again. He did not return for Double Zeta, and he skipped out on Char's counterattack. Instead, he focused on his own directing. He adapted his manga Ariane into a movie in 1986, oversaw the TV version of boys' love manga Kaze Toki no Uta in 1987, and finally directed the adaptation of his sci-fi manga Venus Wars in 1989. But it didn't go well for him. His time in the director's chair soured him on the anime industry as a whole. Remembering that time, he said, I was suffering from a complete feeling of stagnation. I thought about quitting animation after Gorg, that's Giant Gorg, released in 1984, but I couldn't figure out how to resign. I made Ariane in a half-dead state. Maybe I was flailing around when I decided to make Venus Wars. Just make one more and be done with it all. I didn't know how far I should go on, but I was fully aware that in my current state, I couldn't. If someone had asked me what I wanted to do, I would have said there was nothing I wanted to do for myself. It was a time of stagnation for me. Meanwhile, the rest of the world was in the bubble era. The 1980s was the darkest time in my life. So, after Venus Wars came out in 1989, he decided he was done. The experience broke him so badly that not only did he resolve to finally retire from anime, but for three decades afterwards, he forbade his publisher from selling the film in Japan. He did eventually relent, and the first Japanese DVDs and Blu-rays went on sale in time for the movie's 30th anniversary in 2019. I have to interrupt this narrative for a second here to say that I really like Venus Wars. I can understand why it didn't exactly set the world on fire when it came out, but I'm a fan. And I'm glad that Yas was eventually able to get over his own bad memories and look at the film again with fresh eyes in 2018, the first time he'd seen it since making it. Afterwards, he remarked that it was, quote, surprisingly well made. Still, imagine what his emotional state must have been in the summer of 89, just a couple of months after Venus Wars hit theaters. If the 1980s were the darkest time in his life, then that must have been the lowest point of it all. And that's when the folks from Sunrise came calling, with metaphorical hat in hand, to ask him to pull off just one more job. Just one more Gundam, and then you're free. And one way or another, they convinced him. He did have one non-negotiable request, though. Tomino had to let him come to meetings. Tomino apparently agreed, and the two did meet. But the director asked his staff not to seat him too close to the character designer. If I make him mad, he warned, I might get tossed out the window. By that point, the project had some structure in the form of a May 1989 planning memo written by Tomino and a story outline completed in July. Although they had not yet settled on a format, movie, or TV show, the basic contours of the final movie are already visible in this preliminary memo. The major themes would be family and aristocracy. In a broad sense, it would focus on the gulf between idealism and reality, and more narrowly, on the conflict between love for one's own family versus love for humanity as a whole. The action would be set in the midst of a rebellion by would-be aristocrats touting a space-aged version of noblesse oblige. 
Along with Okawara and Yasuhiko, the main creative team now also included the writer, Ito Tsunihisa. Ito would be in charge of creating the overall story structure of the TV series, a role that we sometimes call series composition or simply composition. If it became a movie instead, then he would write the screenplay. Ito, who unfortunately died just last year on August 5th, 2021, was about a year older than Tomino, and by the time he started working on F91, he was already a veteran writer for the anime industry. He had worked with Tomino before, most notably on Tomino's Zabungle in 1982, but also during their earlier careers. Back in 1969, Ito wrote an episode for the Tomino-directed Undersea Boy Marine, and throughout the 1970s, they periodically collaborated, with Ito writing scripts and Tomino drawing the storyboards for episodes of Ashita no Joe in 1970, Nozomi and the Sun in 1971, Dokonjo Gaeru in 1972, A Dog of Flanders in 75, and so on. We can't know for certain, but it does seem safe to say that the two had a decent working relationship when Ito joined the movie's staff in August 1989. Ito was also said to be a friend of executive producer Yamaura Eiji, and it's possible it was Yamaura who recruited him for F91. The producer had recommended Ito as a writer before, notably on Takahashi Ryosuke's Blue Comet SPT Leisner back in 1985. Yamaura felt that Takahashi's stories were too dry, too logical and mechanistic. He thought that Ito's focus on emotionally charged, humanistic stories would provide a useful counterbalance. Now perhaps, and I'm speculating here, but perhaps Yamaura hoped Ito would balance Tomino's own idiosyncratic style. Even as the team came together in the late summer of 89, they still didn't know whether this new Gundam thing they were all making was going to be a movie or a TV show. If it were going to be on TV, then they already had a slot lined up for it, April 1990, less than a year away. So the work needed to begin immediately. Ito and Tomino started outlining the story in July, and the two chief designers got to work on what they did best. But by October, there was not much to show for it. They were six months out from their TV debut, and they had no script, no character designs, just an outline and a handful of very preliminary mobile suits. This, then, was when they had to make the final call about the format and the schedule. Racing against the clock, the team initially received orders to go ahead and start preparing a formal TV proposal. But this was soon called off. By the end of the month, they knew it would have to be a movie. There was just no hope of getting a series ready to air in time for that April slot. But there were other considerations as well. Anime in general was going through a difficult period, and the mecha genre was particularly hard hit. And worse, video game sales were booming at the expense of Gunpla. Under these conditions, the sponsors were reluctant to commit to a full series. Switching to a movie format did not mean starting over from scratch. They had an outline for the first block of 13 episodes, the first core in anime parlance. Instead of writing a wholly new storyline to fit the movie format, Tomino proposed that they simply condense what they already had in order to fit the film's runtime. Reasonable people can argue about whether that was the right decision, but it was a natural one. Tomino and his team were by then accustomed to condensing an already aired show down into a compilation-style movie. They had done it with great success for First Gundam, and had repeated the trick for Idion and Zabungle in the intervening years. And surely it would be easier to condense something that hadn't even been made yet, right? 
It probably suited Tomino's own impulses, too. As a storyteller, he defaulted to a kind of hyper-condensed, breakneck pacing. On First Gundam, the director's original plan would have seen Garmazabi dead by episode 6. It was Yasuhiko, in fact, who convinced him to slow things down, to have the amount of stuff happening, and give the events some room to breathe. But the movie's production kept falling further behind. Tomino, Yasuhiko, and Okawara were all splitting their time with other projects, but it was the script that was turning into the biggest sticking point. Ito's first draft was due at the end of November, but he blew through the deadline. He promised to have it by Christmas, but missed that one too. Finally, in early January, he finished the first draft. He turned in a second draft in February, but Tomino was not satisfied. He sent the script back for a third and then a fourth revision. They needed to start animating, but that meant they needed storyboards, and storyboards required a script. Or did they? On January 26, 1990, with the script still not ready, Tomino decided to take an unusual step, and he started drawing storyboards for the first half of the movie, based on the sections of the script that he considered done enough. In typical Tomino fashion, he worked feverishly and turned in his initial set of storyboards just a few weeks later. In theory, it should have been possible to start animating those storyboarded sections right away, but Tomino had created a new bottleneck for the team. He wanted just about every single mobile suit in the movie to appear within the first five minutes. But the finalized designs weren't ready. They wouldn't be ready until May. And what's more, he was asking for huge crowd scenes, with hundreds of characters and dense, complex compositions. These were challenging requests, even under the best of conditions. In March, one year before the movie's scheduled release date, Ito handed over his final draft of the script and left the team. But I say that it was his final draft and not the final draft, because Tomino and his team made major changes after Ito left the project. Subplots were cut, and pretty much everything about the ending that you would recognize, the bugs, the Rafflesia, the big fleet battle between Federation and Crossbone Vanguard ships, the emotional reunion between Seabook and Cecily in deep space after he spots the lily flower spinning in the void, none of that was in the Ito version of the script. The ending actually had been a problem going all the way back to October 1989, when they settled on the movie format. They had planned for the TV version's first core to end on a decidedly down note, with Seabook and Cecily still enemies. That was fine for a show, but if it was going to be a standalone movie, then they wanted to bring the two together for a happy ending. Despite four drafts, it seems that Ito never managed to come up with a new ending that satisfied the director. I assume that after Ito's departure in March, Tomino tried to come up with a good ending on his own. But in June, with nine months until the debut, he admitted defeat. He called an all-hands staff meeting, and he asked the team for suggestions for how to end the movie. Most of what occurs in the last third of the movie can be traced back to suggestions made during this meeting. It sounds a bit like the meeting itself triggered a crisis of confidence among the staff. They had all worked so hard, under such tight deadlines, only to now be told that the ship is rudderless and the captain is crowdsourcing ideas for their destination. But now, finally, Tomino could finish the story and his storyboards. He had draft boards ready by mid-July, and the finalized versions were done in late September 1990, less than six months to go.
The new ending required new designs for the machines suggested during the June meeting. The bugs, a mecha called the Medzak, which would ultimately be nixed for being too cool to destroy at the end of the movie, and the Raflesia mobile armor that eventually replaced it. These new demands proved too much for the exhausted Okawara. In what seems like a haunting echo of Yasuhiko's collapse during the latter half of First Gundam, the overworked mecha designer became sick, and in July he was hospitalized. He was out of action for about a month, during which the team was forced to adapt. They cut out parts of the plot that relied on other as-yet-undesigned machines, and what couldn't be cut, like the aforementioned bugs and Rafflesia, was handed over to Okawara's young assistant, the up-and-coming designer Ishigaki Junya. Yasuhiko had already finished his character designs back in May, but he couldn't resist a little meddling as the project barreled towards the finish line. One staffer recalled Yasuhiko just sort of wandering around the studio in October, criticizing other people's work, including that of a color designer. The staffer didn't mention her by name, but I assume he must have meant the film's only credited color designer, Imanishi Kyoko. Imanishi was not exactly a neophyte color designer at that point. She had done color work on Tomino projects ever since Ideon, and had been the color designer for Zeta, Double Zeta, and Char's Counterattack. But Yasuhiko didn't like the colors she had picked, and who was going to tell a legend like him to go heck himself? Imanishi grumbled, but she would just have to do it over again. Incidentally, based on how her name is written in the credits for her different projects, Formula 91 may actually have been Imanishi's first project after marrying the animator and director Imanishi Takashi. He was one of two directors in charge of the Gundam 0083 OVA series. Kyoko worked on that series as well, and Yasuhiko himself would later praise the quality of 0083 and complain with some apparent resentment about Sunrise splitting its resources to F91's detriment. I like to imagine the Imanishi family read that interview and felt a little frisson of vengeance for his micromanaging. But it sounds like this story is just one example of meddling, micromanagement, and constantly changing expectations that really hamstrung the whole project. Still, with everything finally settled by October 1990, the team worked feverishly, and by the end of December, the animation itself was mostly done. There was still plenty left to do, coloring, photography, casting, recording, sound mixing, editing. It would be tight right up until the deadline. But they got it done in time for the theatrical release on March 16th, exactly 10 years and two days after the theatrical debut of the first Mobile Suit Gundam compilation movie. Except, um, they kind of didn't actually get it done in time. A significant portion of the movie wasn't finished. 120 cuts of animation, or about 5 minutes of footage, roughly 4% of the movie's runtime, was simply not there, and another 180 cuts needed to be redrawn. They would in fact keep working on it for a further 9 months, until, after 3 years of shifting expectations, endless revisions, and blown deadlines, they finally finally put Gundam F91 to bed on December 19th, 1991. The version we watch today is that final, corrected cut. But the original theatrical cut survives, because it was released on VHS on July 25th, 1991, for, and I am not kidding about this, 15,800 yen, or the equivalent of 250 US dollars today. It's rare and precious, but if you're the kind of person who wants to see exactly what theatergoers of the time saw, well, you still can. And to my surprise and delight, 
A source who would prefer to remain anonymous was able to provide us with a copy. So by the end of this season, I will be reporting back on the authentic, original theatrical experience. Or as close as you can get in 2022. For now, though, let's talk about the three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and movie trailers. If you thought this was the day that we were finally going to start talking about the F-91 movie, you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) Because of both the complexity of F-91's production history, backstory, origin story, (laughs) and the amount of confusion in F-91 about the narrative, we didn't feel that we could talk about the plot and the origin story in the same episode. And so... This week, you get origin story, backstory, and we are going to talk about the trailers for F-91. So much of what is interesting about F-91 actually happens outside of the frame of the movie, which is not to say that the movie doesn't have interesting things in it, but the story of F-91 is so much larger than the movie itself. And you can take that in a couple of different ways, and they're basically all true. Another thing about these trailers is that during that piece on the production history, I talked a bunch about how the parameters of what the film was and what it was going to be kept changing as they were making it. And the trailers are from snapshots in time as they were making the movie. In some ways, we can see in the trailers changes that were made to the movie as it was being made. But we'll get to all of that as we discuss them. Now, on the copy of Formula 91 that we have, which is the Blu-ray published by uh, Right Stuff, there are four trailers. The first two are basically identical, very much teasers. The third one is a somewhat extended teaser trailer. And the fourth one is the longest of all. And it contains basically an abridged version of the first act of the movie. The two short ones, the two teasers only really differ in that one of them uses more spoken English and one of them less. (laughs) One of them replaces those lines with Japanese. So we are getting a little bit of English is cool still (laughs) in these. In 1991, a new legend is born. Gundam Formula 91. Yeah, the existence of an almost entirely English language trailer, at least in the the spoken language, the text on screen is still in Japanese. That's a bit strange, isn't it? It feels like the only reason to do that is because English has a kind of cool cachet to it. We may also be getting into a period in which English language education was being pushed more. I don't know when English classes started being standard in Japanese schools or when exactly JET began. But I know when I studied abroad and did a homestay, I found out that my host family started doing these homestays when their daughters were in high school in the interest of their daughters getting to meet Americans and practice English and do kind of language exchange. There was a period where that was being pursued much more intensively by just like average people. We might be seeing some of the products of that. In season six, we talked about tourism. Um, Japanese tourism to the U.S. was booming during this period. 
which is a pretty good incentive to learn English. My theory around most of these trailers, three out of the four, and especially the first two, is that they're crafted to be as intriguing and appealing as possible in this very short time frame. So they show the Gundam. They show Iron Mask's face. So they're like, cool villain. <laughs> they show Seabook and Cecily and the two of them against the backdrop of space sort of uh, seem to move past and through each other. It gives a very star-crossed lovers vibe. The imagery is all tremendously evocative. Basically, none of it is literal. Like, Seabook and Cecily are not actually in space when they do this shot. And interestingly, basically none of it is in the movie. There's a distinctive shot of Cecily's mobile suit and Seabook's, like, fighting. They have a little clash. Mm -hmm. It's distinctive both because it's well-drawn and um, also because there's a kind of weird stuttering to the movement at one point. But I'm pretty confident that specific interaction between those mobile suits does not happen at any point in the movie. So they show off the main characters, the stars. They set up this expectation of the star-crossed lovers kind of thing. They show the hero's mobile suit. They show the cool villain. And of course, they name drop director, Tomino Yoshiyuki, character designer, Yasuhiko Yoshikazu, or Yas, and mecha designer, Okawara Kunio. So they know these names are big draws for people. They know people want to see things Tomino directed, things, characters that Yas designed, mecha that Okawara designed. It's the trio, the, the original Gundam trio together again. And this is the vibe of the the text that's in these trailers is very much like it's new Gundam. It's Gundam, but it's new. Gundam rebirth. Gundam starts again. Gundam takes flight in a brand new era. In that same vein, once we're in the first of the two long trailers, they mention the universal century. So you immediately know, okay, this is within the same universe. But at the same time, there's a line in the trailer about this being the first chapter in a new era of Gundam, which to me reads like this is meant to kind of kick off a new run of Gundam in the same way that we had first Gundam Zeta, Double Zeta, CCA. It feels as though this is meant to be the first part of another section of the history, another right, right. bigger story. This is only the beginning. They want to stay within that universe because they know it's popular, they know people loved it, but they have to start something new. And if we were to parse the specific language they use a little bit more finely, we could note that while they do acknowledge the universal century, they basically don't acknowledge any of the events of the prior Gundam shows. All they say is people have gone out into space, people have built space colonies, there was an era of peace and prosperity, and now it is coming to an end which is pretty much identical to the way they introduce the beginning of the Gundam saga all the way back in First Gundam. People went out into space, era of great hope and anticipation and prosperity, and now it's all going to come crashing down. The included clips show off a lot more of the characters, show off more mobile suits, more of the flight through space by ships and mobile suits alike. This is in the third trailer? Yes. They also seem to make a point of showing quite a few of the more violent 
or gruesome scenes, uh, one of the classrooms collapsing, people being sucked out of the colony. That scene where one of the Crossbone Vanguard mobile suits kicks the head off of a Jagan. So the established tone, <laughs> what they are setting the audience up to expect in this movie, is a pretty violent, serious Gundam entry. Yet one that also has that element of romance of the star-crossed lovers. The third one also introduces two elements that I think are also big selling points. You were talking earlier about Okawara, Yasuhiko, and Tomino being name-dropped. But in the third trailer, at the end of it, there's a little bit advertising that SD Gundam short, yep. Musha Knight Command. It will also be playing during the movie. Don't miss it. And they include a poster for that SD short, the name of the short itself, and also a little tagline for it. They also mention the pre-sale tickets, the, the limited edition advanced tickets going on sale. And those, I assume, are the ones that were combined with that first preview episode of 0083. And they have the song. They add the Moriguchi Hiroko uh, insert song to play during this trailer. Because there's no speech. None of the characters' lines are in this. And that's because it hadn't been cast yet. <laughs> I they was hadn't going to recorded say, anybody's lines. They must not have had any voice acting yeah. completed yet. If this was when those pre-sale tickets were being sold, it would have been in December uh, 1990. And at that point, they had definitely not recorded anything. And they probably hadn't cast it either, because I've heard that the casting was last minute. And they not only include the theme song itself, but they mention music by Kadokura Satoshi and theme song by Moriguchi Hiroko of King Records. Is that a name you're familiar with beyond just this song or? Yes. Moriguchi Hiroko essentially like debuted by singing From the Aqueous Star with Love for Zeta Gundam. Um, and then her, her career was like sort of went into decline after that. She didn't manage to like maintain that level of popularity. And so returning to Gundam and with this like total banger song is like a, a huge return to form for her. So kind of like Tomino and Yas and Okawara, okay. they're bringing somebody back from Gundam's past. Yeah, I did not recognize her name, but of course I remember from the Aqueous Star with Love, and I didn't recognize the name of the composer, the person handling the music. But clearly the studio thought these names would be big draws for people. King Records does a lot of anime soundtracks, don't they? Yes, and they have been in with Gundam since the beginning. I remember, you may not, but I remember in season one, you did a research piece about how King Records' success selling the soundtrack to Mobile Suit Gundam was like a wake-up moment for the industry about the potential profitability of anime soundtracks if they were sold properly. So King Records is a long-standing partner of Sunrise. And the uh, voice actress for Chris McKenzie, I believe, mentioned King Records as well. And having worked with them at some point when she recorded songs for <laughs> shows that she had voice acted in. King Records in the future is also going to play a big role in supporting a lot of very like music forward anime productions. Uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion in particular. Now we should talk about the last of these trailers, which is by far the weirdest. <laughs> It has the least text, no overdubbing. Most of it is orchestral music, and then they switch into the theme song, which does have lyrics. It's significantly longer than any of the other ones. I assume that all of the others were TV spots, and I assume this one was like played in theaters before other movies. 
It feels really long though, and also, uh, perhaps because of the lack of any text or dubbing or dialogue of any kind, because again, it doesn't have any dialogue, <laughs> I don't really understand what they were trying to achieve. I do not feel as if it conveys a sense of the plot of the movie mm -hmm. beyond there are some kids. <laughs> They're trying to help each other. There are some mobile suit fights and somebody attacks a colony. I mean, it literally could not convey the plot because I noticed everything in that trailer is from the first 25 minutes of the film. <laughs> because the first 25 minutes of the film were finished before anything else was. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm lying a little bit. Um, there are a couple of bits in the trailer that do come from later in the film, except they were originally planned to be at the beginning like this. This is part of what makes this trailer so fascinating. It is an artifact from a moment when the opening of the film was planned out to be different. If you look at the original script and the original storyboards for the film, there are a bunch of scenes of Crossbone mobile suits launching from their ships and uh, Doral Rona commanding them and then they infiltrate the colony and the bit that is the actual beginning of the film where they're like cutting through a bulkhead it like starts out completely black then you just see the orange cutting torch and it looks super cool and it's a great opening that was not meant to be the opening that was supposed to happen later after we saw all of these mobile suits launching from their ships and attacking the colony those cuts many of them were removed from the beginning and moved to like an hour into the film but here they're in what appears to be their original order. The intended order. <laughs> this is the opening to the movie that we would have gotten if they hadn't chopped it up and rearranged it. And the trailer is probably set up like this because we know that the stuff at the beginning was animated first before they did anything else. So this is the stuff that was ready. I feel for the person putting the trailer together under these circumstances. Yeah, obviously at this point I can no longer put myself into the headspace of a total Gundam noob. But if I weren't already interested in Gundam and already sort of familiar with the format, <laughs> uh, this trailer wouldn't do anything for me, I don't think. <laughs> I don't yeah. see this as a trailer that would attract anybody new to the franchise. I mean, it feels like they've tried to put a bunch of good animation in there to right. attract people who are interested in that. Like, it, there's good animation. There's some shots that look really good. But it's unclear what the stakes are of the story. There's very little to no personality of the characters conveyed. <laughs> I... It's also a bit strange. Like, it's an abridged version of the first 25 minutes of the movie. But then there are some bits that aren't very good or important or very well drawn. And they just let those run basically in full, like when the spaceboat is launching. And I kind of wonder if at some point... Somebody went to the Formula 91 production and was like, we need footage for a trailer. Give us footage for a trailer. And they were just like, well, this is all we have. Here's literally everything that's finished. Do what you can with it. There are a few parts of the trailer like that. Like when Seabook's dad is going past the sort of command room of the port and it's just slow and it's just him in a spacesuit looking through a window at some people in an office. And it's long. <laughs> I'm boring but it's there and there's some there's some stuff that's like in the wrong order which in a trailer would normally not be weird except that otherwise everything in this trailer follows the same order that it does in the movie like there's a bit where the space boat is launching and then they cut to seabook driving the gun tank 
I'm not sure why. Maybe there was a version of the story where those happened in that order. Or they really weren't clear on what exactly they were trying to achieve here. And it was just like, uh, scenes. <laughs> well, again, going back to like changes, there's a bit that shows up, I think, in both the third and the fourth trailers where we see the F-91 Gundam cutting through a crossbone Vanguard mobile suit. It's very distinctive. And it's so distinctive that I knew immediately what scene from the movie it was, but the backgrounds are different. Mm. In the trailer, this fight happens in space. In the movie, this fight happens inside one of the colonies, and so it's a blue sky background instead of a star field. It's difficult, though, looking at these trailers, like knowing what I know about the chaos behind the scenes in producing Formula 91, I'm very tempted now to look at these trailers and go, aha! Confirmation, evidence, the trailers are the way they are because the movie was developed the way it was. But I assume the process of putting together a trailer for any movie can be a little chaotic. Things are always changing. I know the Char's counterattack trailers include footage that isn't in the final film. How many times, even for live action and even more recently, have you ever watched a trailer and it has a scene in it that doesn't end up being in the movie? Or it conveys a pretty different emotional tone or vibe mm -hmm. than the movie itself does. So we need to be cautious when we make these kinds of assumptions based on this kind of evidence. But at the same time, we do have those behind the scenes stories. We do know what the production was like, and we can see how the trailers are the product of that. In particular, those first two teasers feel as though they are for the version of Formula 91 that was going to be a show, that was going to be longer running, that was going to have time to develop this sense of conflict between Seabook and Cecily in a more fulsome mm -hmm. and interesting mm -hmm. way. Those first two trailers really do set up Seabook and Cecily as linked but opposing forces. You know, the way we see them come in from opposite sides and overlap each other, they are connected and drawn together by fate, and that it's really a movie or a story about the two of them mediated by Iron Mask and the Gundam as influences on these two kids. The movie itself, because there are so many characters and they have been condensed into such a small runtime, feels much more like an ensemble cast. The centrality of Seabook and Cecily doesn't come through in the same way that you would expect it to just based on these trailers. The conflict also feels so much less personal between the two of them than the, the trailer sort of sets up. Like, yes, they wind up on opposing sides, but because of the way time passing is conveyed in the movie, which is to say, I think, poorly, it feels as if they spend very little time on different sides before they're mm -hmm. back together mm -hmm. again. And so there's little to no tension in that brief period in which they're in opposition. And that, of course, speaks to that original plan, which would have had the first core end with the two of them still on opposite sides. What might have been. What might have been. I know in talking about the production, Yasuhiko complained that even though he was the guy designing the characters, he didn't always know which ones were going to be important. <laughs> no. That this is, you know, this stuff was changing as they were going, as they were trying to figure out what the what the story was going to be, as they were rewriting as they made it. You know, a character like Birgit ends up being way more important in the movie than it seemed like he was going to be in the initial planning. And I have to think about the people making the trailers 
and when they were making the trailers and what did they even know about this movie? What did they think the movie was going to be like? Probably pretty different from what we ended up with. Which is yet another good reason to lean on those well-known names. It's going to be Yas and Tomino and Okawara. You trust them, don't you? So what does it matter really what the story is about? You fool, you buffoon, you never should have trusted them. Next time on episode 7.4, Colony Collapse. We begin our research and discussion of Gundam F91, the movie itself, and Gundam will take flight in a brand new sky. Beautiful life Tomino. Magical earrings or a new type of tinnitus. The zombie so nice, Yaz drew him twice. This machine kills humans. I never thought the Gundam would eat my children. Future semaphore. See book. See book fight. Fight book fight. And long ago, there were Gundam specialists called podcasters. They were pretty much miserable people. This is only the beginning. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that Spacenoid men will literally put on an iron mask and commit genocide instead of going to therapy. This week's wrong Gundam opinion was suggested by Vary in the MSB Discord. Thank you, Vary. But how many of us can name the character designer for 2017 Magical? What's that sound? Oh, is that my head? I think it's my headset. Oh, okay. My, if my mouth moves, it like creaks. When the drip feed of S day. S day. Lies, danged lies, and movie trailers. And because there are a lot of trucks outside. <laughs> mm. I'm just trying to think of how to introduce the segment. Uh, I have kind of a funny idea. Go ahead. This song has rapturous devotees in the Gundam fandom. This is a beloved song. Okay. Yup. <clears throat> Strap yourself in. It's gonna be a long one. <laughs>